You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, the BC Real Estate Association has a new report looking at where the market is headed. We're going to check in with the Cressy Development Group for the perspective there on what we might see in the coming months. Also, how much information about COVID-19 is getting through to people and where are they getting that information? Just two of the questions researchers are asking in a new survey project. And we found out the ICBC road tests are resuming for commercial drivers next week. We check in with BC Attorney General David Eby to talk about how that's going to work and how they are going to get enough protective equipment to make sure both those taking the test and the ICBC employees are safe. That and much more all coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi once again. We're going to take a look at a new report. It takes a look at housing in Metro Vancouver as well as throughout the province. Not the greatest outlook right now considering the COVID-19 pandemic. There is some optimism looking down the road, but... Again, not great numbers if we look at what's happening currently in the real estate market. Now, this report out from the BC Real Estate Association, and we are joined by Jason Cressy with the Cressy Development Group for his take on what we might see in the coming months. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's Jason Turcott. No, don't share the same last name as the company, but that's that's okay. Okay, we've just uh, promoted you and put you into part of the family. Sorry about that. <laughs> Apparently, no worries. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the report. Again, it, it uh, starts off by saying we were on this one track, like many industries, COVID-19 hit, and things aren't looking great right now. What do you see as far as real estate in this province? Yeah, we certainly were off to a pretty good start uh, at the beginning of the year. Um, and that's coming off the heels of really a, a pretty dismal year in 2019. It was uh, the worst year in terms of sales volumes that we had seen in quite a long time. Uh, and it was definitely showing some promise. Uh, January, February, March, um, there seemed to be a renewed optimism really across all types of real estates and across the entire province. Um, uh, there just seemed to be confidence and it was rolling in the right direction. And then, of course, as you know, uh, you know, it shifted quite suddenly as soon as the, um, the shutdown came into place. And when we're talking about that, are you able to, to differentiate between residential and commercial or did we see some sectors that are faring better through this than others? Yeah, I think it was the residential sector was certainly uh, more active. Uh, commercials has been a little more steady, um, a, a little more even uh, over over the past few years, frankly. Um, but it was the residential market that was really heating up, and then of course uh, has, has, has slowed right down. And, and what's happening right now, I think, um, is is a, a lot of people just sitting on the sidelines. Uh, there's there is certainly I do agree with the report that there are. Uh, seemingly folks sitting on the sidelines looking to be opportunistic, uh, but I think there's, uh, for every one of those, there's one uh, seller sitting on the sideline holding off on a listing thinking this is probably not the right time to sell. So consequently, what's happening is just a whole lot of nothing. I mean, pay- prices are pretty flat, transactions are low, uh, and that's um, in the resale market that, that show up in the MLS stats as well as uh, in the market that I'm in, which is which is primarily in a pre-sale new housing market where often those sales aren't reflected in the MLS numbers. Um, but the same is true there. Uh, developers such as us are certainly um, um, pausing and, and not rushing to start uh, new projects, which means new supply is not coming forward. And uh, I think we'll see 
as the as the stats come out for new housing starts uh, through this quarter, they're going to be quite a bit off from where they were before. Well, even looking at the housing starts and through most parts of the province in this report in in the, in the last quarter, I mean, it's a lot of negative numbers. Yeah, well, which is so uncertain, right? And so, you know, as an industry, um, when we start new projects, new housing projects, they're they're you know, there has to be a certain risk reward ratio that we're comfortable with and a return that we're able to to, uh, to achieve to get those projects started and financed. And often to get financing on a, on a uh, project of scale, you need a, a certain amount of pre-sales, which are sales that happen before you put a shovel in the, into the ground. And at the moment, the, the market certainly just doesn't seem to be there to support it in any kind of magnitude. And uh, like I said, without those pre-sales, uh, you, you don't get financing and without financing, projects don't move forward. So there's a lot of wait and see because, uh, you know, developers try not to launch projects that they don't have confident will be successful because, um, you know, a failed launch often means, uh, you know, a real slow process and a bumpy road and, and often, uh, you, you know, you have to shut down and restart it, which is obviously costly. So um, a lot of people being very patient at the moment and uh, holding off. And how much of that do you think, or I don't know if you can even break it down, but how much of that is the pandemic? Is it permits and the red tape that goes with building? And is it international travel that that's shut down basically right now and we don't know when it's going to reopen? Yeah, all of the above. Uh, you know, the permit side has been an issue. Um, approvals and, and entitlements and, you know, whether it be building permits, rezonings, development permits, what have you, continue to be a struggle uh, to um uh, to get through and, and what we're really hoping to see through all this, you know, I was just reading an article this morning about, uh, uh, the new patio program and how they're expediting those things. I wish they could expedite, uh, you know, housing approvals the same way, because, uh, frankly, we're all feeling, uh, a lot more risk. Like there feels there's a, a lot more volatility, uh, potentially ahead, certainly at the moment, you know, what, how is that going to translate? How long will it last? So with an increased sense of risk, uh, you know, you feel you need to feel as a developer that your opportunity to succeed, uh, your opportunities to succeed are as, are as great as they, as they possibly can be. And, and at the moment, we're struggling to, I think, come to terms with, with the municipalities who have um, had a good ride, as the development community has for the last better part of the last 20 years, where a consistently increasing market has allowed them to make some pretty aggressive demands and really take away a lot of those uh, reward opportunities from developers, whether it be through um, you know financial contributions or imposing uh, community infrastructure upgrade requirements, et cetera, et cetera. But I think as a collective um, a sector right now, new housing builders are feeling like that piece of the pie has been cut too thin to justify the uncertain times and the uh, the risk that we face in starting new projects at this particular time anyways. And I, I would imagine when you talk about red tape, like you said, they've managed to streamline so many other things. This might be the best time to make that argument and make that case that you've done it here. Why not do it for building as well? Yeah, it's obviously a lot more complicated, but, we're, and, but that is the message we're trying to send home. It doesn't need to be quite as complicated as it is. It doesn't need to be quite as perfect as it is. Um, uh, it doesn't need to be... Um, you know, so protectionary as it has become, both in terms of making sure that the, the city, you know, peels away as as much of the um, the potential reward from a project as it possibly can before it gives you the green light, and and really just just the the, the checks and balances that you go through now versus even, you know, I've been in this business for twenty years, at the, you know, and and fifteen twenty years ago it was a 
uh, in an eight-page approval letter, which has now become 28 pages. You know, it's, it's dramatically more complicated, and we are trying to drive home the message that, hey, it wasn't always this way. We can go back to a time where uh, uh, there was a little more balance in this approval process and getting permits out the door. All right, Jason, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. All right, that is Jason Turcott, VP of Development at the Cressy Development Group. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, we are going to talk a little bit about the Confederate flag being banned at NASCAR. But just before we do, wanted to play for you a bit of audio because it does capture eight seconds that tell a much bigger story. It takes place in Oklahoma, where authorities say they are investigating the arrest of two black teenagers who were accused by white police officers of jaywalking in a Tulsa neighborhood. This is a neighborhood where there were patchy sidewalks, no visible footpaths in some areas. Tulsa police on Tuesday released two body camera videos of the officers who handcuffed the teens. This happened on June 4th after a video of their arrest went viral on social media. Now in this little bit of audio and in the footage released by police, you can hear the panic in the young man's voice. We just walking down the street. What y'all follow me for? What y'all follow me for? What you follow me for? What you follow me for? You broke the law, that's why. Again, that was just a little bit of what unfolded when two black teenagers arrested by white officers handcuffed and accused of jaywalking. Wanted to share that with you. We are also going to talk about what's happening in the United States as far as protests when it has to do with the Confederate flags. Some statues are being toppled right now as People say they have had enough. We're also going to talk a little bit more about, again, NASCAR banning the Confederate flag. And CKNW Mornings contributor Nikki Reitmeyer joins me now on the line. Nikki, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Yeah, the Confederate flag at a NASCAR race, it's been a familiar sight for fans for decades. And for us here in Canada, it seems absurd that they would fly a Confederate flag. You know, this flag of an army that rose up against the United States that stood for something so nefarious. Not only a treasonous army, but an army that was in support of slavery. Yet it flew at NASCAR races for decade after decade after decade. And finally, NASCAR said, you know what? Enough is enough. We will no longer allow fans to bring these flags to NASCAR races. Bubba Wallace is the only black driver in NASCAR. And on Wednesday afternoon at Martinsville Speedway, he drove his number 43 Chevrolet completely decked out in Black Lives Matter decor in that paint scheme. And before the race, while he was wearing an American flag face mask, Bubba responded to the news that NASCAR had officially banned that Confederate flag. Bravo. Uh, Props to NASCAR and uh, everybody involved, you know, this has been a, a stressful couple weeks, and um, this is no doubt the biggest race of my career tonight. And it couldn't be at a more perfect place where I got my first win, followed it up with that second one in 2014. So I'm excited about tonight, man. There's a lot of emotions, um, you know, on the racetrack and off the racetrack that are riding with us. But tonight is, is something special. Today's been special. Again, hat, hats off to, to NASCAR. Phelps and I have been in contact a lot, um, just trying to figure out what steps are next. And, and uh, that was a huge pivotal moment for the sport. A lot of backlash, but it, it creates doors and allows the community to come together as one. Hmm, interesting. 
Yeah. And he mentioned there's been a bit of backlash. And I think that's because there is an identity associated with the Confederate flag that many people see as positive. They say, this is our Southern pride. It's not about slavery. It's not about racism. It's about our Southern pride. But Max Kellerman, he was speaking on ESPN about it. And he was saying, no, that's not what this is about. If you really get down to the roots of it, he said, it is absolutely crazy that in the U.S., they've tolerated the Confederate flag as long as they have, not just in, Ma- in NASCAR, but in other institutions as well. By the way, was it the Marines yesterday who finally said no more Confederate flags anywhere? Like, does the U.S. military, how would it persist this long that the U.S. military allowed the flag, uh, the, the racist flag of Southern treason to exist on military vessels that were fought against by the people bearing that flag. What is this? By an enemy army trying to destroy our army? It's insane. Now look, the point is not to humiliate white people in the South, because I understand that many of them will tell you, well, no, 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 this doesn't mean that we're pro-slavery or something. This means that we have Southern pride. One of the things about recent events that could have a positive effect is it raises awareness of actual history, not of mythology that has been passed down in the South, sometimes willfully um, and deceitfully. But for the people who truly don't know any better and are saying, but that's not what the flag means to me, at least stuff like this will help enlighten them. Yes, but that's not what the flag actually means. Of course, there should be a ban in NASCAR on the racist flag of Southern treason. I mean, it comes down to context, doesn't it? Yes, it's a part of the history and people will argue it's heritage. Sure. Then put it in a museum and explain it to having it in a NASCAR race or somewhere else. It's completely out of context. Well, yeah. Or as we heard in the news recently as well, you know, Trump rejecting that there should be a renaming of military bases who are that are named after Confederate generals. I mean, Again, that concept seems so absurd that you have uh, an opposing army at one time in American history and you've named military bases after those generals. It's absolutely crazy. It's fine to talk about the Civil War in a specific context and to have those relics in a museum where you're referencing them in a certain way, but to pay tribute to them by naming American, United States of America military bases after those leaders is crazy or flying that flag in, be it by your military or by your citizens at a sporting event. All right, Nikki, we will leave it there. That is CKNW Mornings contributor Nikki Reitmeyer. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we hear the word pandemic a lot lately, but what about infodemic? If someone said that to you, would you know what they were talking about? Well, a couple of local researchers have taken that idea and done the research to figure out exactly how people are learning about COVID-19 and how different groups get very different information and are experiencing this pandemic differently. Well, Dr. Emily Rempel with the BC Centre for Disease Control led this study and joins us now to talk about what was learned. Dr. Rempel, thank Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, what exactly were you asking people on this particular study? So the Michael Smith Foundation for Health, Health Research uh, funded us to survey British Columbians' understanding and experiences of the pandemic and how that relates to the infodemic. So the infodemic is uh, all the different ways uh, British Columbians access information and the misinformation they might hold about COVID-19. And this was specific, wasn't it, as far as who took part in the study and who the questions went to? 
Uh, yes. So we very purposely wanted to ask our Chinese populations, our Indigenous populations, our South Asian populations, and our LGBTQ plus community about their experiences as well as the experiences of other British Columbians. And what did you find? So top of line, a very good news message was that most British Columbians are aware of our public health messages and are practicing those uh, healthy behaviors that we recommend. Nearly every respondent, nine in 10, said that they're staying home more, they're staying home when they're sick, they're washing their hands. But misinformation was still quite common in our various populations, in particular in how COVID-19 spreads and how it's treated. So Nearly one in five respondents still believe that COVID-19, which is a virus, can be treated by antibiotics, but those only treat bacterial infections. And we all have, you know, the family member post something on Facebook, like drink lemon water every day and, you know, you'll cure COVID-19. And those things are just not true and can cause harm. And and the spread of it as well, believing that it's, it's, it's airborne or what else was out mm-hmm. there as far as, as those beliefs? Oh, absolutely. Uh, a significant proportion of our population still thinks it's airborne so that the particles of COVID-19 stay in the air, which as far as we know, they don't. So people then will have behaviors that are under that belief. So they're going to you know, avoid anywhere they think someone's ever been who's had COVID-19, which is not healthy. And what did it find as well on how people are being treated? Because unfortunately, we've seen videos posted and we've seen scenarios and, and such where, where there have been racist remarks or outbreaks and people treated differently simply because of the way they look. So this is something we were both extremely concerned about and interested in looking at and understanding, which is one of the reasons we wanted to reach out so strongly to our various non-white populations, is to understand how perhaps misinformation is leading to stigma or just in general what their experiences are with stigma. So even though we knew we would get results back that were that had you know reported stigma, they were still much higher than we thought they were going to be. About one in three of our Chinese respondents um, said that they witnessed someone else being treated badly because of race and COVID-19. And that is just much higher than is acceptable. As well, our Chinese and South Asian respondents um, report staying home more, staying less in touch with their friends and family. And 38% of our Chinese population reported feeling more aware of their ethnic background due to COVID-19, whereas only 6% of our white respondents reported the same. So there's definitely massive issues which we know from the news and our survey confirms it yeah which so so what do you do with that information then when you get those results that maybe you're expecting things to go a little bit one way but then they come back far far more than you anticipated what do you then do with that information so one of the most important things we're doing is talking to people about it and making sure they're aware of it we're actively feeding back to our government and community partners about these results as well as within our own centre. And one of the actions that we're taking as an organisation in the BC Centre for Disease Control is making sure that our communication strategy doesn't make the problem worse. So it's taking an equity lens and making sure the things that we say are not stigmatising. The survey also found a lot of support and respect, and I don't think people will be surprised by that, for our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry. Was that pretty much across the board? Uh, It was mostly across the board. So about half our sample said they actively look to Dr. Henry for their COVID-19 information. And a vast majority of those people said that they trust her. But when you sort of flip that on that 
Ted, it means that half of the people that we surveyed are not looking to her for information. So even though she is the source of truth and she's the place you can look to for the most up-to-date and accurate information, I think there's still a job to do to meet people where they're at. Did they say then the half of the, the, the respondents that don't look to Dr. Henry for information, did they say where they look for it? So a lot of those respondents look to um, Prime Minister Trudeau for information. A lot of them look to a variety of social media places. I think a really good example of that is uh, youth. So 18 to 24 year olds, one in four actually like actively look to Instagram for COVID-19 information. So that's quite a high proportion. And I think it says that we need to diversify our communication strategy. All right. Well, it's very interesting, uh, very interesting findings that have come back from this study. Dr. Rempel, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for making some time for us. Uh, Thanks for having me. Dr. Emily Rempel is with the BC Centre for Disease Control. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are all anticipating phase three of the reopening in BC. Many people wondering, though, what exactly it will look like and what industries will be forever changed by the COVID-19 pandemic, hotels, tourism, film. We're going to talk about film a bit later on in the program, but safe to say there are some jobs that not only will be changed, they probably won't come back at all. So what's going to happen with people who have historically been working in those industries? Let's bring in Andrew Petter, the president of SFU, to talk a little bit more about this. Andrew Petter, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Uh, Nice to be here, Jill. Uh, What opportunities do you think post-secondary institutions are going to have as we start reopening and rebuilding? Well, I think it's going to be a challenge, but one that uh, in BC the post-secondary institutions can step up to because we, we, I'm not sure how well known it is just how BC stands out across the country. We have a very differentiated post-secondary sector. So we have strengths in colleges, strengths in teaching universities and institutes, and of course uh, in research universities like Simon Fraser. But there's a real opportunity to harness that strength because as you said, as the business report that was just on said, there are going to be areas of the job market that may not recover. But on the other hand, there's going to be opportunities to create uh, new jobs in uh, a whole raft of different areas. And the key to creating those jobs and giving opportunities to those people who've been dislocated because of COVID-19 is going to be education. Education is going to be the, uh, the tool that's going to help people to uh, move into new jobs and hopefully level the playing field a little bit because, of course, COVID-19 has shown a lot of economic inequalities that if we can harness education, I think we can build a stronger uh, economy that will serve people a lot better. So that's, that's the hope. Uh, I think uh, a lot in the post-secondary sector are starting to think about the role they can play, and we're hoping that government is thinking of us because there's a partnership to be had. Uh, When when we're talking about post-secondary, and you kind of touched on this, the different forms of post-secondary, do you see them taking different roles in that getting a degree at SFU is much different than taking a two-year trades program? Absolutely, and I think there's going to be need right across the spectrum. I mean, there's new areas that will require research uh, universities to use their research and for for uh, for for uh, higher level degrees areas like uh, quantum computing uh, or agritech for example or fuel cell research all of which can help us achieve a greener economy as well as a stronger economy but there's huge needs in the healthcare sector we've seen uh, the needs exposed in the healthcare sector uh, in childcare in 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 new kinds of service industries certainly in the trades in value added industries that are going to call upon 
uh, non-degree programs, for example, certificates, diploma programs, things that can upskill people or help them make a transition. Uh, Areas uh, in technology, for example, where women have been hugely underrepresented, there's an opportunity to get more women to move into those areas because we see how hard women have been hit by COVID-19. So many of the service jobs have been jobs that have been held by a large numbers of women who now may not find those jobs coming back, but through education and through uh, support from post-secondary institutions can find new jobs in areas that require technological uh, proficiency. And do you think this is sparked by the pandemic or were universities and post-secondary schools already doing this? Well, I think uh, in BC, the post-secondary sector has generally been doing a good job but I don't think we've been sort of in the moment of transformation that we may now be. And I think we're going to be asked to step up and play a larger role. And I think we can do that. You know, there are certain moments in history when, uh, when society starts to think uh, that maybe there's a need for a change. I think there's a sense of interdependence that's come out of COVID-19, a sense that we're all in this together, a sense that public institutions need to play a role and a fear that we're going to have uh, a post-COVID-19 economy, which may exacerbate some of the inequalities and problems that have been exposed, but also a hope that we can do something about that. And I think education is the key to that, and I think this is a special moment. And this is a special week because this is where, where most in- institutions, at least at SFU, we're graduating our, our, our class uh, for this year. We have a summer program that has higher enrollments than than last year. So I think students are starting to see that education is the best insurance against uncertainty. And we're hoping that in partnership with governments and the private sector, we can really fire up the engine across the post-secondary sector to help build a stronger, greener, and more equitable economy going forward. Do you think that this could lead as well to permanent changes into how education, particularly university education, is delivered? In that I've been following and watching a lot of people quite frustrated saying they're people that with disabilities or with mobility issues that for years tried to have lectures online, tried to have some kind of distance learning, and we're always told that that couldn't be done. It simply wasn't possible. You had to be physically in the lecture hall or on the campus. Do you think we're going to see a permanent change there? Yeah, I think there are some silver linings uh, in in the COVID-19 clouds. And the fact that, for example, universities have had to adapt to uh, virtual teaching, uh, I think we will come back to in-person teaching because it has value that can't be replaced. But I think some of the lessons we've learned about how to deliver programs, how to make them more accessible, will be translated into improving the way we teach. I think uh, also universities and the whole post-secondary system needs to be adaptable to the changing job market. So degrees will be suitable and important for some kinds of jobs, but certificates, diplomas, upgrades, uh, we're going to have to provide a full spectrum of different kinds of learning opportunities that meet the needs of students and look to the opportunities that are going to arise in a new job market. Uh, And how do you see universities or post-secondary Uh, Is it possible, is it a goal even to level the playing field in that for a lot of people, even trying to access that type of education is cost prohibitive? Yeah, I think, you know, the the federal government, uh, to their credit, uh, has increased significantly during COVID-19 some of the the support they provided so students can uh, afford, even if they don't have job opportunities to come to university and other institutions. I do think that what we can do is look at a different approach to student financial aid that really targets that aid to those students who are most in need. And in fact, if you look at the amount of money that governments now allocate for student financial aid, 
it would be sufficient to meet the needs of, uh, of students who really have barriers to post-secondary. So I think it's a matter of reprofiling. Uh, we also, uh, of course, use a lot of co-op education. I think that is very important in helping students not only to learn about the job market, but also to earn some income, and that's another way to support students. Uh, compared to other countries, Canada is pretty accessible still, um, but there's always improvements we can make on the, the affordability and accessibility side as well. All right, we'll leave it there. Andrew Petter, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we have been talking a lot about long-term care facilities in this country, the difference between private care homes and more publicly funded, and what needs to be done to perhaps improve the care in some of the homes after we've seen some pretty deplorable conditions in light of COVID-19. Well, Global News reporter Jill Crocho joins us once again to talk about the fourth installment of her series, which is looking at long-term care homes in Canada. Jill, thanks so much for being with us again. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're taking a look as well, the difference between private long-term care, the costs associated with that, what types of care are out there. What have you found? Well, it's really fascinating, just the whole dynamics of the structure. And it's sort of like once you peel back a layer, there's another one and there's another one. It's not just sort of one size fits all. Because in my mind, when I got into this, I was thinking of these large you know, institutional type long-term care homes, which most people can identify with. And that's where most of these outbreaks of COVID-19 have really been happening. But when you start to look at what other options there are within even the nonprofit sector and in the private sector, and really just the disparity and the real difference of care, and it's not necessarily like, you know, you have to be wealthy and, and how much money you can buy to buy the best care. It's really a differentiation of what the government is willing to support. And that's what we found here in Alberta. The government subsidizes most seniors if you want to move into a facility within the public system. They, they pay for the cost of your health care and the families are on the hook for the bill of the accommodation, so basically rent. But in these private facilities, families are on the hook for the whole thing, even though the level of care is quite similar. It's round-the-clock care, but it's in a smaller type setting. We visited a, a couple of homes in Red Deer, Alberta, in central Alberta, and these are basically homes, bungalows, converted into, you know, 10 beds. And these people, they function as a family, and to see the difference of what it's like in sort of these nursing home type things and in these smaller home type settings, the difference is pretty remarkable. And a difference as well, too. I mean, as much as I hate to use the, the term warehousing, but that's been used mm-hmm. quite often to talk about the, the, the more traditional settings. And, and I think it is important, and you're doing this, having this conversation about just because it's been done one way doesn't mean that's the best way to do it. Well, we've done it this way historically. I mean, we've deinstitutionalized so many parts of our population, but it seems to be acceptable to continue to do it this way for seniors. So it's really reinventing the model. It doesn't have to be, you know, I mean, why are we putting dementia patients in these massive homes that they have challenges to navigate with? I mean, you know, it's easy to get lost in these places, you know, if you don't struggle with dementia. So it's really just... I guess kind of opening up the system to say, okay, maybe this isn't the only way. There are these other ways where people 
thrive in a real extraordinary way. I mean, these staff to patient ratios, they're closer to one to four to one to five. When you're looking at these larger type homes, it's one to 10 or one to 12. So it's really about what do we think that our seniors deserve at the last stages of their life? Do we want them to go to a long-term care facility just to die? No, we want them to go there to enjoy the last years of their life. So does it really come down to money then? Because the price difference, the reason that the, the traditional home looks that way is it's, it's probably the most cost-effective way if we're only talking about dollars. Is it, is it the difference in price? Absolutely. I mean, when we're, I mean, the prices, like a senior costs the same in the public system and the private system. It's just what is the government willing to subsidize? Like, what are we on the hook for? What is our bill at the end of the day as a citizen? And I I know that there's a lot of controversy between private and public and sort of this elitist attitude, but it doesn't have to be that way. There is a way that the government can supplement different sectors and different kinds of homes instead of all one home, these big sort of conglomerate monster operators who, I mean, these companies operate upwards of 10 facilities just in one city. And those Mm -hmm. are the people who are winning the contracts with the government. It doesn't, you know, so, so, so these other smaller operators are sort of left out. So I want to be able to trigger this conversation to at least say, okay, let's open this up and look at different models of care because they're, they're out there. All right. Well, it's been a great series and uh, just fascinating reading about uh, the different scenarios and what people are asking for. I'll continue to do that. Jill, thank you so much for joining us and sharing it with us today. Thank you very much. That is Global News reporter Jill Croto, and again, uh, doing a series on private long-term, well, on long-term care facilities uh, in this country and the very different models that are out there and available right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, earlier this week, uh, we were chatting with the president of the BC Trucking Association, Dave Earle. There is a backlog of drivers. Uh, there is a need for drivers. Uh, so, yeah, we're looking forward to when ICBC can uh, restart their, their program. So talking about commercial drivers and road testing, we now know ICBC road tests will resume for commercial drivers next week. And those tests have been on hold for uh, months now, almost three months now. There is a big backlog. And joining me to talk more about this is BC's Attorney General David Eby. Attorney General David Eby, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Good morning. How is, how is ICBC prepared to deal with the backlog, both commercial and standard road tests? Well, ICBC does about 20,000 road tests a month, and it's really heavily weighted to uh, the Class 5 license, which is your license that you need just to drive around a personal vehicle. There's probably about uh, uh, in the hundreds of, uh, of uh, commercial tests. So the backlog is certainly there, but it is not as dramatic as it is for uh, personal licenses. Uh, commercial testing starts next week, and uh, and there will be uh, protection for the uh, person who's taking the exam as personal protective equipment, as well as for the examiner who will be uh, uh, pretty covered up uh, with a shield and a face mask and a seat cover and gloves uh, in order to protect both parties. And as far as the backlog, uh, there are two uh, uh, separate uh, policy responses that ICBC is looking at to minimize the backlog. One is offering extended hours. Uh, and uh, and training additional ICBC employees to do these exams. And the second is uh, I'd ask them to look at the possibility of making sure that everybody gets at least one shot, but if they fail their test, uh, that uh, they have to wait a little bit longer as everybody tries for the first time. 
it it's, seems like it's taking longer for ICBC to kind of get back into this the swing of things dealing with COVID. We, we've seen chiropractors, massage therapists, nail salons have all done their protocols to get up and running. Why is it taking longer for ICBC to deliver uh, services to truckers who have been deemed essential? Yeah, it's, it's vitally important to get these uh, truckers on the road. And uh, ICBC has done some uh, essential uh, workarounds for things like paramedic drivers and so on. Um, the challenge is, uh, and, uh, and actually it was uh, uh, responding to uh, a trucker uh, on, uh, on Mike Smith's show the other day, is uh, that truckers are traveling all over the place, uh, both within Canada and um, within the province. And so we need to make sure that ICBC does not act as a vector of transmission of the virus to truckers who are going to be heading to remote communities across the province. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, both the uh, examiners are safe and the person who's taking the test, unfortunately, in the period uh, leading up to the cancellation of driver's test, there was an exposure of a driver or of a driver examiner to COVID. Um, people are coming from out of province into British Columbia to live here and they need to do a road test. Uh, and we need to make sure that they have been quarantined for long enough before they do the test. There's all kinds of considerations to make sure that everybody's safe. Uh, and it's part of how our province has been successful is to be uh, cautious and responsible, but moving forward, and that's what we're doing. Uh, the tests, uh, I expect ICBC will be one of the leading uh, agencies doing road tests across North, North America in terms of personal uh, driver's licenses. Uh, was there an issue or has there been an issue with getting enough personal, the protective equipment uh, in that uh, people will have to wear mandatory medical grade masks, not just a cloth covering? Uh, was that a problem? Yeah, that's a really good question. So given that there are about 20,000 uh, tests that take place a month, getting adequate supplies of personal protective equipment, especially for the examiners uh, to get the N95 masks, has been a challenge because the first priority, obviously, uh, is for hospitals. And they're uh, running through significantly more personal protective equipment than they have uh, previously. And then uh, first responders, police, ambulance, firefighters. And then somewhere after that comes uh driver uh, examiners. Uh, and so uh, we're not the first priority in terms of uh, delivering driver tests. Obviously, it is a priority, uh, especially for commercial drivers, but not the first. And so uh, making sure that there's enough personal protective equipment for all of those first responders and for healthcare uh, has been a priority of government. And, uh, and fortunately, uh, that personal protective equipment is coming in and ICBC hopes to be starting those personal tests soon again as well. Uh, you mentioned then if a driver, so if a commercial driver takes the test, if uh, the driver unfortunately fails, do you know how long do they go to the back of the line at that point? Well, currently there is a restriction around how many tests uh, you can take within a certain period of time because people were using the driver's license test as uh, essentially training, <laughs> driver training. <laughs> so they study to the test, they just go and fail and fail and fail and then pass. Uh, and so we took some steps to restrict that um, and to require certain waiting periods, but we may have to expand that um, given the significant backlog uh, with three months. That's about 60,000 tests that should have taken place that didn't take place in terms of personal licenses. Um, and so I've asked ICBC to look at that possibility. Um, priority for tests uh, on the commercial side and on personal license side will be going to people who had a test date that was cancelled because of covid uh, and so uh, the goal will be to accommodate those people who were planning on getting a test but weren't able to because of the shutdown. Uh, and then after that, uh, making sure that people at least get one shot at it. And will priority go to commercial truck drivers, say, over people who are taking the Class 5 test to be rideshare drivers? 
so the the priority uh, first priority is uh, commercial truckers and uh, and that class of license that requires uh, you know air brakes and, and additional certifications and so that is the first priority. Uh, other types of commercial licenses like rideshare um, will be uh, uh, in that uh, tranche of priorities, but the first priority does go to the commercial truckers. Uh, and then after that uh, will be the personal license exams. And um, and I, I think it's important to note that uh, that as far as the rideshare and the personal licenses, the the rate determining step or what's holding us back is uh, is just the availability of the personal protective equipment, and and both will come online very close uh, in close proximity to each other once we have enough masks and so on. All right, we will leave it there, uh, David Eby. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's BC Attorney General David Eby talking about the restart of road tests at ICBC.